so happy to be here. Shout out to everybody that's joining us. What's going on? Russell, Gina, Jay. I actually got a chance to meet Jay earlier this week out here in Denver. Jay, uh, thanks for hanging out. If you're free later, you can be up, man. We've got Costa, Tom, what's going on? Yo, what's up? Hanging out with Joe Reese, everyone. What's up, everybody? Uh, Ken, Ken G is taking over as the host for me today. So, Ken, thank you so much for doing so. Um, guys, huge shout out to the sponsors of today's episode. Um, we got the ML Ops World Conference, machine learning in production, taking care of the, of the uh, you know, just taking care of the show and the community. Thank you guys so much. Huge shout out to y'all. Um, look, I'm, I'm here just for a second. Just want to say hi to everyone. Joe, message to Hey, good to see everybody. Awesome. Well, <laughs> Ken, good to see you, Ken. Ken, this is this one's all you, man. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you uh, taking over as host, and uh, I'm out of here, yo. Yes. Yeah. All right. See y'all. See you, Ken. Love you, man. All right. Thank all you, Arp. Right. Awesome. Well, everyone, welcome to this happy hour. I'm so honored that Harpreet would let me uh, let me take it over. I'm uh, I'm surprised. You know, it's a bit of a liability letting me run one of these things, but it, it, at the at the end of the day, I think we'll have a lot of fun here. <clears throat> I'd like to start uh, start this one off with some some light topics. Of course, we're always taking questions on LinkedIn as well as YouTube. Um, I, I will, like Harper usually does, I will plug my own content first and then would love to, to sort of dive into a little bit more uh, in-depth conversation around that. So uh, my my podcast, Ken's Nearest Neighbors, had the 100th episode this week, uh, which was a pretty, uh, pretty wild occurrence. And I took the opportunity to interview my dad, who is, uh, you know, he's in his seventies, he's a, uh, he's an oral surgeon, knows nothing about, about what data science really is or our careers. And I'm wondering how you explain or how you interact with your family members or people important to you when they don't quite understand your career. Like, like what are their impressions? What do they think that you do and how do you, um, and do they appreciate it? Do they not understand it and think you should become a doctor? I might have had some of that in my in my past. Uh, any thoughts there? I'd, I'd love to start with uh, with you, Tom. Oh, thanks, Ken, because I had a funny answer. Um, my wife actually helped me with this answer. She said, well, you remember how in Friends everybody was wondering what Chandler did? That's what I tell people when you're not around. Oh, you remember Chandler on Friends? Just like Tom, it's hard to explain what he does, but I found out later, Chandler's actually a data scientist. But to put it in the most important terms, uh, the way I like to say it is, well, uh, money's an asset, right? Gold's an asset, real estate, land. Do you, do you think data has become perhaps the most important asset in the modern age? And then it, there's a little bit of a light there when you put it that way. Now, Imagine being able to visualize that better, tell stories with it, even make predictions with it. Could you see how huge a value that would add? Yeah, that's what I do. That's amazing. I think that looking at data in, in more common terms, whether it's a commodity, whether it's an asset, whatever it might be, there's, there's value in similarities. There's value in the storytelling there. And of, of many storytellers, you, you stand quite pretty close to the top thumb. So I would imagine that that, that, uh, that messaging is very compelling for everyone around you. What about you, Ben? 
depends how much I like the person. Like that's that's genuinely it. If I think they're, you know, sometimes I'll say, yeah, I do applied machine learning research and just stop. Like expecting them to know what I just said. And it's amazing. You, you know, you get you get people that react to you very badly. And for me, that's like I did data science in 2012. I didn't even know what it was called. So my answer to this is kind of interesting because when I first started out, I didn't have a title. I didn't have, like, I was just a consultant. It, it literally, that's where I was. And I was classified as a consultant. And so when my parents ask me what I do now, uh, they've just stopped. They, throughout my career, they've asked, so what are you doing now? What, what are you doing now? Now they're, now my dad just says, yeah, you work, he, he has his own business. He's a consultant. <laughs> There's no other explanation anymore. But when I actually have to explain it to somebody, I just say, I, you know, I work in technology. I work with data. If you've heard of AI, I do the dumb version of that. And that's usually getting everybody laughing and kind of gets them to understand what it is that I work on. I think a consultant is the, the lowest hanging fruit. Everyone knows what that is and nobody wants to ask any more questions about it. So it works pretty well. Gina, you had a kind I, of funny, uh, funny, uh, nope, I gotta, story I'm sorry. I got to tell you Got to throw my dad's zinger in. He said, you know, when he, he got asked once while I was there what I did. And he said, you know, I bought him an Atari when he was when he was very, very young. And I think he took it a little too far. So that is my dad's answer to what I do for a living. Well, honestly, that's that's better. My dad tells everyone I got my master's in IT, not computer science. So all of his friends call me to try and fix their computer. And uh it's uh, it's pretty brutal, but he he knows what I do. He just doesn't understand the difference between that that small uh, that small like nuance there. Uh, but Gina, I'd love to hear hear your story about uh, about your PhD friend here. Oh yeah, just real quick. So I was um, at a management consulting interview event, and um, some of us were just talking before our interviews, and uh, this guy. Um, he, he has a PhD from some prestigious university or other, and we were talking, Oh, what do you do? And, you know, I don't know, it was probably econometrics or something like that. Um, or economics. And he goes, yeah, he's like, I just tell my grandmother that I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. I tell my grandmother I'm a lawyer, which is pretty much nothing like what he does. I don't know. He could have said a mathematician, but anyway. Is sometimes, you know, I've probably explained to my parents what I do 50 times. And I decided to one day just make a video. And every time they asked or every time they didn't get it, I would just keep sending it to them. And uh, it still it still hasn't worked, but at least it was a more scalable shot. <laughs> uh, I do want to call out. I, I see Mickey is in the building. She just today released her first YouTube video. Um someone feel free to link that in the chat uh definitely give it give it a look it was extremely high quality especially for her first video way better than probably even my like 50th video so definitely definitely give that a look russell you have any thoughts on this question yeah sorry it took me a little while to get off mute um so i actually spend probably half of my professional and personal life explaining to people what i do and, and how i work with data uh, and to make it easy, I try to um, come up with a metaphor or some kind of analogy for it. And the one I use most often is 
you know, imagine data is um, types of food that you would, you know, make a, a recipe with. So I'm kind of both uh, the food sourcer, uh, the supplier, uh, the stockist, uh, the chef and the, and the waiter. And I kind of pull all of these things together and push it out to other people. And that tends to be appreciated fairly well by everyone from, you know, family members to work colleagues that aren't immediately familiar with, uh, with data. I personally love that metaphor. I actually made a video uh, that I've linked in the chat. It's data science explained with cooking. Uh, it didn't really, uh, it didn't really get a lot of traction, but I love the, uh, I, lo I love the metaphor. It just is such a perfect fit with data pre-processing everything along that pipeline. Anyone else have anything they, they want to add to this thought, or we can move on to Custub's uh, question. Let it rip. Yeah, man, for me, it's really easy. I, uh, I just tell people, hey, I teach robots and machines to see, right? And most people seem to get that without needing to ask about the details. Plus, it's kind of cool to say that. So, you know, let's go with that. Very cool. I think, uh, I think Gina had a question as well, though. We'll do yours and then Gina's. I, di I did not see. Okay. I, th I believe you asked cool. first. Why don't we go with yours and then Gina will be next. Cool, cool. Um, okay. So question of the day. Um, data... How do you guys do testing in the context of data? Now I'm talking more, hey, I've set up data pipelines to get, you know, certain amount of data in from regular sources. Uh, but we're talking about how do you analyze that data along the way? How do you make sure that the, the quality continues to remain the same? How do you ensure that, uh, you know, the processes that you're running on it, any of your um, initial transformation and loading steps, uh, how, how do you make sure that they don't change in a way that's going to break previous functionality? Um, when you have to test with data in the context, um, just curious how people are going about it. Like we're doing a few things on our end at work and things like that, but it's always good to kind of get other people's picture on that. Amazing. Uh, Eric, you want to, you want to take a stab at this one? I was only half listening because I'm looking up Doge memes. So I'm going to have to pass on that. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, let's go to Vin. Vin, you're, you're my go-to for, for everything along the pipeline. You know, it's funny data pipeline stuff. It's all automated for me. So I have no idea. And I'm not like, I'm not giving a sarcastic answer, but I've had really smart people just automate everything. It's the last time I had to do anything manual with a pipeline that was like the actual architecture and the stuff that's happening under the covers. It was a really long time ago. I mean, the only thing I do anymore for the data engineering side is like building out ontologies and doing the curation on that end of it. So, you know, I, my answer really is automate everything. And if you can buy something, there's a ton of tools out there right now. You end up like building a stack, but it, it's so much easier and cleaner. Just find things that meet your needs and really that require the least amount of effort because everyone I talk to now who does this, it's like, this is all they do. It's craziness. Yeah, we, unfortunately, we, our, uh, our main uh, data engineering folks aren't necessarily here today. Uh, we, we missed Joe Reese like at the beginning. We should have just like dragged him in here. <laughs> I'll see the same um, thing earlier on today. I mean, you're right, Vin. I do a lot of the automation of the pipelining stuff now because we don't really have anyone to do 
a lot of that. So we're doing a lot of automation up front so that we can get to the, uh, you know, being able to experiment quickly and things like that. So we're kind of figuring out how do we automate and test that at the same time. Um, that's kind of where yeah. the question comes from. Well, what kind of I mean, budget I, do you have for tools? I and mean, that's kind of where I would, I would ask you, do you have budget to buy some tools? We've got reasonable budget to buy tools. I mean, we tend to prefer off-the-shelf tooling where possible. We prefer to buy over build um, in most cases, as long as it's not exorbitantly expensive. That's what I would do is I would just bring somebody in who's an expert on that end of it. And you can go to Amazon and they'll, they'll basically give you a consultant, especially if you're a small business or a startup. If you commit to using theirs, and I think GCP might be starting a program like that, but they're kind of not as interested in their customers as, as uh, Microsoft and Amazon are. But if you go with one of those two, they'll typically end up like handing you over a consultant at really low cost. And they'll help you basically, you know, they're going to make you use whatever stack they have, but they'll build out a lot of the underlying pieces and they'll give you the high level architecture and they'll make it as easy as humanly possible. So that's really what I do because the amount of knowledge that is required in order to build one of these end to end, it's substantial. And like I said, I'm, you know, I'm kind of privileged because I have really, really smarter than me people who helped me out with that. But if I was building a startup from ground zero, I'd probably just go hit up AWS and like knock on uh, Greg's door for a few minutes and see if he'll kick you down some smart people. I mean, he's got that product manager cred. He might as well use it for something. Amazing. Mickey, you have any thoughts on that one? I feel like you're probably the closest to the the pipelining that we have uh, in lieu of uh in lieu of a, uh, a Joe Reese or, uh, or some of our, our more traditional data engineers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it kind of depends, right? So like enterprise companies, they can, um, if they're using like a popular cloud provider, they can usually kind of, there's like two approaches. They can kind of just make things easy on themselves and go for like an all you can eat approach. Um, which is, it makes sense because you don't, if you're a big enough company where you're supporting such, such a large team anyway, instead of trying to get all of them to like optimize their pipelines or models, um, which no one and, and their queries, which no one really loves doing, um, you just basically say like, hey, why don't we just do like a, a blanket, you know, all you can eat and then you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. But that still doesn't cover like the actual building and the maintenance phase because a pipeline that's broken is a pipeline that's not useful at the end of the day, regardless of how heavy or lightweight it is. If you're a smaller company, it gets a little bit tricky. I'm I'm also a fan of just leaning on the cloud vendors uh, or even like, for example, if someone's using, because that's like, I think the popular direction right now is that for a lot of the open source libraries, especially around like data processing and pipelining, um, most companies are going for the, let's create an open source version of it. And then let's try to monetize via like a managed version. Um, so that can also be like still an option, even if the company is not GCP and AWS, they might still be willing to like work with certain companies or teams because they're like, okay, this could lead to like a, like a really popular, developing a really popular like, um, case study that we can then sort of showcase on our website. So I do feel like it's, it's an understanding what are the levers of negotiation to get that kind of support. Um, because at the end of the day, startups want 
and like start products. They want people using their stuff. And they also understand that if they just put it out in the open, um, people are going to have questions like, if you're an open source library, are you still going to be around in like two, three years? Um, so leaning on that and like getting that support from them is really important as well. And I think ultimately it's also at the end of the day, like if people are really serious about investing in that data pipeline, they need to hire the people and they need to like make it important. I.e. like having data scientists that are doing 50% pipelining and data engineering work and 50% data science work ultimately leads you to like, frankly, ineffectual data engineers or ineffectual data scientists um, or people that are just really stressed out and then they become ineffectual. So either way, you get ineffectual like value for the money if you're like putting all that stress on them. But yeah, as much as possible, leaning on um, resources that are around and finding sometimes very unique ways to negotiate that kind of relationship is also like a huge, huge advantage. Amazing. Russell, did you have any thoughts here? I also hear, I saw a LinkedIn post. You were on some form of team. You want to give some backstory and, and maybe provide a name here? You're not going to fake his way out of this one. Get online. We want to know. Yeah. Okay. I'm caught up. I'm caught up. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah. I think, do you know, when, when the pressure gets too hard for me, I think my laptop senses it and it just, it just <laughs> slows down to give me a little more time to, to prepare. Um, yeah, so I, I was at a, a two-day hackathon in the UK here uh, in London, um, which is a, a project delivery-centric uh, data hackathon type event where we use machine learning and data analytics to approach problems that are either common or unique within the project delivery um, uh, industry. Uh, so that's where I was, and yeah, I put a... I put a post up fairly reverently saying, oh, we came up with a silly name for our, for our team this time. Can you guess what it is? And uh, it got a little more traction than I expected. Uh, and uh, I think I've really tortured Tom, certainly, and, and Eric, and perhaps a couple of others here. And, you know, if you twist my arm gently, I will reveal. But I, I was trying to let Tom know that he's, he's kind of got the name all but putting the words in the right order. So you, you give me a nod now, Tom, if you want me to say it right here, I will. Uh, but spoiler, it's, uh, you know, it's probably going to be a real anticlimax because it's not, it's not the best of names. It was just odd and it had nothing to do with data. So I thought it would I'm, be uh, I'm, I'm asking you to reveal it more for Eric's sake than mine. He's struggling even more than me. Sorry for the background. I understand. I understand. And I, I appreciate you looking out for your, for your fellow peers there, Tom. Um, okay, so uh, there was there was four of us. Um, three of us had facial hair. One of us didn't, uh, and the one without facial hair was named Johnny. So I think I'm really telegraphing this already. But the official name was Johnny and the Three Beards. As I say, it wasn't that special. I just thought it was a little bit, a little bit of irreverent fun to have on. Uh, on LinkedIn, and it really got a lot more traction than I expected. I thought you were going to go with uh, dummy variables. No, I was kidding. There was there was some really good alternatives actually came from people, and I I want I want to stick those in a little black book, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take those with me to the next events, and I'm gonna, just going to choose from them. And I, I particularly liked uh, that one that you mentioned, Tom. The the more better, so more better data. I think that's that's the next one for me. 
I love it. Well, well, let's move on to another question. I think Gina, you had two of them, correct? You want to hit us with uh, with some some knowledge here? Well, hitting you with questions and seeking knowledge. Um, so the first has to do with, uh, well, I have a technical question and a more of a career question, but let me start with the career related one. So um, I recently, so I'm career pivoting for those who don't know into data science. And I recently posted my resume to a tech jobs board site. So not to just the biggest of job boards, but tech job board. And I've been getting inundated by recruiters contacting me. You know, I, I put it up there deciding, you know, let's just see what happens. And yeah, so, and I'm just, I'm scratching my head a little bit and I did do a little Google search and I can't find anything that really explains the what's going on here with these tech recruiters. Yes, I'm sure some of them are scams and they're just trying to get your personal information and so on. But I mean, are any of them legit? Are, are any of these jobs legit or should I just take my resume down right now and forget about that, not that stuff. Um, so I guess a, the larger question is, is how do the tech recruiters operate? I mean, obviously there's some very high level, you know, ones that are sourcing like the, you know, the uh, most experienced or most knowledgeable talent. And then there's probably some that are just scrambling to try to find people who will hopefully look good in front of their, you know, hiring manager. And then, you know, there's these other ones where I guess they're seeking contract positions. So it's really unclear to me. And some of them just seem really unprofessional or the jobs don't really match anything. I mean, they're not close enough to what I have in my LinkedIn and on my resume. So it kind of doesn't make sense. So that would be my first question. And I figured this group here would have some really good <laughs> knowledge about what's happening with this. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, so it, it might be helpful to kind of understand um, uh, what's what's that phrase? Uh, recruiters are not a monolith. Um, so it, it's probably helpful to understand kind of the different personas. And this is kind of similar in like, so for example, in real estate agents, right? Like you have people who are, um, and I know this because I work with a real estate company, not because I actually own a home in the Bay Area. That's just, it's a pipe dream. So, but, um, okay. So in real estate, right, you have a buy side and you have a sell side agent and you also have agents that kind of work both sides of the, of the deal. Right. And what that means is, uh, so a sell side agent, they're responsible for like listing the house or the job in this case. Right. Um, they make the job look as good as possible. They do the writing up the description and all that. Their goal is to source as many leads as possible. You have buy side agents who typically will represent like the candidates or so sell side kind of represents the company or the house buy side typically represents the agent or a lot of times the like job candidate. And you can have people that are quote unquote in-house they're freelance or they're part of an agency. So those are kind of the three ways uh, uh, recruiters can kind of operate. And within recruitment, if you think of it as like a pipeline, kind of like the marketing to sales pipeline, um, you have some recruiters and a lot of times these are kind of like younger, sort of, they're, they're, they're either like younger, more junior, or they're people who just are really good at quote unquote sourcing. Their job is to hit up as many people as possible that could fit the parameters. 
And for them, it really is a numbers game. Um, eventually, if they do move on past that, um, they'll then be responsible for the like interview, for setting it up, um, and the payment is also different. So if someone is like a recruiter that's in-house for a company, um, so for example, an, in, an Intuit recruiter, like for my company, right? They're in-house, um, they get a base salary and sometimes they might get a placement rate, but for them, it's like a job and they're more focused on like getting the right candidate into the team for the role. Like they maybe have a quota, but like they're very, very much so like interested in we need to meet someone, we need to get someone who, a candidate who meets kind of what the team is looking for and all their stuff. And they are usually directly associated with the team. Um, recruiters that are what they call full cycle or, or like, there's another term for it, but who are freelance, for example, a lot of times these are folks that are headhunting for very senior roles, like executive roles. Um, they have very specialized experience in an area. So if they're uh, hiring for like tech, CEOs or VPs, basically they've already gone through the gauntlet sometimes of working as a recruiter for a company, but they're kind of like so good at their job that like they're really hired for those like high value expensive roles. A lot of times with them, they are very targeted. Like they're not doing the spray and pray on the keyword approach. What they're doing is they're looking at like the candidates, like resume, LinkedIn, they're really thinking through this and then they're crafting like a message to you that will directly target your like LinkedIn profile. Right. Um, and then you have people who are sort of like, they work for a recruitment agency. Um, they're incentivized on numbers. Uh, so basically like if they're only sourcing, it's how many resumes they can like get people to say yes to. Um, if they're being paid on placement, it's literally like how much they're being paid on like people they can fit into like a role, right? So you have like this, all these different types of recruiters that are kind of all operating like out there on LinkedIn. And it, be, it can be very, very kind of confusing because the recruiters are like targeted. They're, you know, looking for higher value candidates or maybe they're just better at their jobs. They will a lot of times come off as being more professional because they are more professional. But sometimes you also get junior candidates who like, their real, their only real incentive is to like meet their numbers. So part of it lines up with how they're being incentivized. So you'll get kind of a mixed bag. Like even nowadays, you know, it's been like five years since I've done Salesforce, like at ad, like admin stuff. And I still get recruiters going like, oh, do you want to be like a Salesforce admin for like an email marketing team? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm good. Like if they just took a look at my LinkedIn profile, they would know that that is like, that was Mickey you know, alpha, alpha release, you know, not even beta. It's just, we're past that. We're on like Mickey V2 or whatever, um, you know, but they're just doing spray and pray. Like that's their thing because that's how they get incentivized, right? Other recruiters, they'll be a little bit more targeted probably because they're not being, they're not being paid on like number of resumes being sourced. They're being paid on like who we can place into a team, you know? So that kind of, how it lines up, but you'll definitely get like a mixed bag for sure. Um, yeah, I get a lot on like Salesforce admin, email marketing, growth hacking, like you name it or finance. And I'm like, if you just took like one little look at my like LinkedIn, where I say I am specifically, you know, open to these roles or whatever, um, they would probably see that it's not like, you know, 
But I would say like, just keep your resume out there because you just, you know, you never know. Like I've had two or three of my roles where recruiters who like found my resume, it just happened to align in the right point in time where my resume matched my, you know, profile of what I was looking for. Um, but I would say like, never cut out, never cut out options for yourself in terms of like how recruiters find you or like getting roles, you know? Thank you, Mickey. Thank you. I, I think, I think that, um, sort of there's some heuristics you can take out of that. These are ones that I used when, and I got most of my positions through recruiters. The first thing I look at as Mickey had just mentioned is did that recruiter, um, is there, are they directly from the company or from the, are they from an agency? Um, I usually think that the ones from the companies are more serious. Um, if they are from an agency, you can look at the agency's website and see if they're legitimate or not. I find that if you actually work directly with the agency and they know what you're looking for, they will source you the specific opportunities that you're interested in because a lot of them, as Mickey said, do get paid by um, if you actually land the job or not. So you can sort of outsource a lot of the searching to the agencies and it's a win-win situation there. You just have to find a couple agencies that you genuinely like and that's pretty important. Go ahead, Gina. Yeah, so, um, so the website that I posted on is Dice, which I'm sure many of you guys are. Uh, I did Dice. a sponsored video from them. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, Vin's got <laughs> Vin's the, out on yeah, Dice. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Interesting. yeah, I've, it's been a while since I looked at their website. And um, yeah, so it just seems like a lot of, and I don't, I haven't looked at, most of these I haven't even responded to. And there were a few where I, I initially responded to one that seemed good, but, um, you know, then they, they're like, send me your, you know, send your resume. It had to, my question was, is there any possibility of it being remote? They said, send your resume. I'm like, mm, no, I no, something about this seems fishy. And um, then another, I think that same person might've asked me for all kinds of info. I'm like, you're crazy. Like we have a bunch of jobs we're filling in this and this and this and this and send us your info and references. It's like, I'm not sending you my references. I'm not sending references until we're talking about a job offer. Why would I even contemplate you contacting my references just randomly out of the blue? Hell no. So yeah, so that's the thing. So I, I see Vin gave me, gave the, and I would really appreciate hearing from him, but thank you, Ken. And Nikiko on that because um, yeah, it seems like maybe there are, and I don't know what those agencies are that might be able to hook you up with, you know, reasonable jobs, especially if you're kind of just starting out. Um, my situation is a little more complicated because I do bring a lot of like experience, project management, and program management that I think could be really useful. But um, yeah, but being like a data science manager or you know senior data scientist that, that might, depending on the company, just be a bridge too far given my current experience level. So um, yeah, Vin, I'd be really curious to hear since you were very uh, emphatic in your response. And floor is yours. Yeah, Dice was, <clears throat> it used to be great, you know, when I was Eric's age, but that's been a while. And so it's, it's not great anymore. And <clears throat> so what I would say is, Avoid the bigger job boards like Monster, Dice, uh, ZipRecruiter. Uh, you know, I can keep going. They're not bad. <laughs> Mikiko is so nice. But the money's in the mail. Thank you. 
So yeah, I would avoid the major job boards because they're not great for our types of roles. And once you get past about five or 10 years of experience, most of the job boards are uh, just not, they're not for your type of position. So that's going to be one. What Makiko went through was like 100% everything you need to know about recruiters. And the best ones, the really the best time to work with recruiters is very early on in your career. Or when you're working with what Makiko was calling those, uh, your headhunters, very targeted recruiters who know exactly what they're doing, usually executive level recruiters. And you're close to that stage. I mean, you might want to reach out to one or two of them and see if there's somebody with within your niche. The best way to find them is they are all over LinkedIn and they will probably be, I mean, if you look for posts on recruiting around project manager positions and data science positions, you'll find the best ones. And that's going to be like LinkedIn is recruiter paradise. And so if you're looking for a good one to work with, that would be a good way to network in and say, hey, this is my background. I'm looking because they're going to be the ones who from there will kind of take the relationship and help you really find the type of role that you're the best for. And like I said, you have a level of seniority that's you might end up be, you know, really benefiting from that because there's, yeah, there's some, I, you know, it's kind of like a 50, 50, but I'm pretty sure you'll get some value from working with them, but talking about job boards, I would avoid that. And in your position, I mean, I know your background, I would start networking with C-suite at SMEs, just start on LinkedIn, send, you know, maybe four or five invites a week with targeted messages and just say, Hey, I want to follow you. you want to understand your needs around what, you know, data or product project management and start, start conversations with people. And what I tell a lot of people is have a number of conversations you want to have every week. You know, say you want to have two conversations a week. So you want to have five conversations a week. It's almost like a sales cycle at this point where you want to sit down and really niche into exactly who you want to talk to talk about company size, talk about seniority, because you need to be talking to C-suiteers if you're in a smaller mid-sized business. If you're going for like a huge business, yeah, I'd say like VP levels, just fine. But small and mid-sized is going to be your sweet spot for targeting. Talk to the C-suite, put together like, this is how many meetings I'm going to have this week. And then figure out how many times you have to reach out to people in order to get the connection responses, in order to get the meetings. And what you're going to find is if you set it up to have like four meetings a week or six meetings a week or two meetings a week, whatever you have time for, you're going to get into a sales cycle where you'll have, you know, they say, hey, you know, I got this role for you. And then you're going to be able to get the cadence where it's like this many connections equals this many meetings equals this many, you know, uh, jobs that I can come in and apply for. And you'll get the cycle like in less than a month, you'll kind of have it figured out and you'll end up just it's, it really is, it's a sales funnel. And from there, you, you know, you'll end up being employed in probably about two to three months in a really good, high quality job. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you so much, Ben. That was extremely helpful because I think one of the biggest issues just in job search generally is prioritizing your time and figuring out who you should be talking to and how, you know, how much effort you should be putting in. I mean, I think most of us by now know that applying for stuff, even through LinkedIn or even on company sites, is a real crapshoot. 
Um, and so networking is the name of the game, but even there, it's hard to know who exactly to target. And um, yeah, so I really appreciate that so much. I, I just I, maybe add, a broader, oh, go ahead, Tom. Just real quick. Um, I think Vin's advice is spot on. Um, I made the mistake of waiting for good recruiters to find, discover me and come talk to me. And after seeing how good a good recruiter can be, it dawned on me, oh, I could have asked around what are really good recruiting groups and given my stuff to a lot of them. You still get ghosted even by good recruiters, but it's, it's just a better crapshoot, I think. Thank you, Tom. I, I'm interested from the group perspective. How do you feel about inbound recruiters on LinkedIn? Do you find that more of them are uh, legitimate or is it still sort of a crapshoot? I mean, my thought is, you know, if you're in genius position, you're talking to a lot of people, like I'm more than happy if I'm getting roles that like I'm not looking right now, I try to forward them on to whoever's interested. And if I know my friends are interested, I just basically say, hey, like talk to this person maybe they'll respond, maybe they won't, but it's, you know, you're making someone else's day better. If I do a recruiter, a lot of favors, maybe they'll help me out in the longer term. Um, kind of broader question. Do we think that most of the stuff coming on LinkedIn is more legitimate than pretty much every other platform? Um, Eric, do you have any thoughts on that? I would say, I guess kind of most recently, maybe recruiter messages on LinkedIn, okay. Um, but more so, I think LinkedIn is better, has been better for me in getting messages from like somebody who's actually hiring, like a hiring manager rather than just a recruiter who found my resume or whatever. Um, actually, probably like the, the best recruiter message I got recently was actually to my email. Um, I don't know, they probably just got it off my LinkedIn profile because it's there. Um, and, and it was, it was good. They clearly like looked at my profile and had like, actually they basically like told me they wanted to talk with me about a job. That's pretty much the exact same job as I do right now. So I was like, nah, I don't really want to like redo the whole learning curve. And they, so it was, but the, the point was that they had put the work in for it as opposed to when I get other emails or messages that are just like, so like murder mystery of like, I have a great position hired, being hired by, you know, a super important VP of data science or whatever. I'm just like, I like spare me the spam, spare me the, the, uh, you know, emotional roller coaster of it. I just, let's just talk about it because we're humans and professionals. Um, so yeah, I would say it's, it's okay. It's, it's fine. I mean, I'll take more great recruiters and bad recruiters if they just want to give me a good sample. Why not? I literally never respond or have never responded to one of the ones that's like this anonymous company, X, Y, Z. The only yeah. reason they do that is because you'll Google the company and, or like Glassdoor the company and see how bad the reviews are. And they don't want you to do that first. So to me, that is a go. massive, massive red flag. Um, Gina, did you have a second question? Yeah. So my second one is um, it's, quite technical. I'm working on a project right now. Is it okay to transition to this question, do you think? Uh, does anyone have anything know. to add to the previous one? Go ahead, Eric. I have something real quick. So since we're talking about recruiting, 
We are hiring at LendingTree, uh, we're hiring a paid paid social analyst. Um, and so I want to at least drop that in there. So I can I also put it. Yeah. So um, if somebody has experience with uh, like we're like, it's not social analysts. Like we're looking for somebody who's an Instagram influencer. <laughs> it's social analysts. Like, yeah, you know, you have a creative bent, um, but it's a data position. So, you know, needing to know SQL and Tableau and being able to work at the Facebook ads platform and things like that. Yeah. Sorry, Ben. Uh, so anyway, wanted to throw that out there for anyone who might be interested because yeah. And I know the, I know the guy on the team, I, he's not the hiring manager, but he would be the, uh, he's part of the team and good to work with. Now, Eric, Ken, Eric, Eric wouldn't say this. I just have to remind everybody that's listening. The main perk is getting to work with Eric Sims. Oh, a hundred percent. Right. Right. I might even apply and just just for that. <laughs> um, and any any recruiters watching, take note. This is how you get qualified candidates. So, um, <laughs> I, mean, I don't really want an influx hours. of yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I I think we're good to to transition here, Gina, to to something more technical. Great, thanks. Um, oh, just a public service announcement for the folks who are listening, uh, perhaps now or later. Just do watch out for scams. I mean, there are full-on scams out there, and I just think it's worth pointing out because, like I've heard from uh, you know fellow boot camp folks, <laughs> Tom in the chat. What? Yes, it is true. There are scammers out there, and even on I don't know maybe I don't know how LinkedIn if they're dealing with it, but um, yeah, like especially boot camp grads will be approached by companies you know, little red flag, if they offer to hire you before they've even interviewed you, look out. I mean, some of this stuff should be pretty obvious, but you know, sometimes there are some, uh, you know, more sophisticated scams out there, but you know, red flag, anytime somebody's asking you for money upfront for anything, run away. That would be my advice. Um, so I just want to put that. And so, oh, go ahead, Ken. No, no, I, I think that's a really important one. I absolutely agree to watch your wallet first. <laughs> Most definitely. So uh, yeah, my technical question is this. I'm working on a project uh, with an organization, data science for good type organization. And um, I have done a bunch of data wrangling and I built a TensorFlow model. Um, the, the images are um, a lot of different kinds of textures and we'll just leave it at that. Um, it's the, the group we're working with is a startup and so it's proprietary stuff. But um, there is, so I'm at the feature extraction point and I'm trying to create, uh, you know, they, they're looking for essentially a recommender system, you know, like given that I put in a certain image, can you tell me the five or eight most similar images at least for now, well, in our database that we have. And it's in the training data set alone, we've, I've got something like 18,000 images. And so I found ways to do the feature extraction uh, in TensorFlow before the final layer. I just set up my own little uh, model. And now I get all these features and I'm struggling to figure out what is the best way to like literally what I want to do is find for any given image, what are the eight 
you know, what are the other eight images? And I'm assuming the best way to do it would be to find eight images that are closest in terms of the distances, whichever uh, algorithm one uses to compute, you know, the closest, like the smallest differential between those, if that makes sense. And so, I mean, you could do k-means, but that's clustering. And um, I don't think that's going to work real well. I haven't done KNN, not Ken's nearest neighbors, but <laughs> K nearest neighbors. I like that name. And then Ken, you even said on your pod, I think on your podcast, you said, I didn't come up with it. You know, someone else suggested it, but it's brilliant. Um, anyway, I would love any suggestions on this because I'm just trying to, it just seems like a really difficult, I mean, a challenging computational problem. Um, and so, you know, for any given image, how do you go through 18,000 plus images and compute which eight images or so are the closest? Yeah, Mickey, do you wanna, do you have some thoughts on that? It seemed like you're familiar with some of the, the uh, like using the embeddings. I mean, I would assume you, like the first approach would be using K nearest neighbors on the embeddings. Um, but is there something that's more, more efficient because that could take a long time. You have to calculate all the distances. Yeah. I would check out, um, Spotify's like annoy package. Like it's a, I think it's similar to nearest neighbors. Um, but that's like the pattern I've seen with a ton of like image based recommendation projects. Um, is they literally do that. They extract like the embeddings. Um, they use like Spotify's like Annoy to do the actual like embedding comparison or to get the similarity, I think. Um, and then they just find the ones with like the top, like they like they rank it right in the order of like the nearest similarity to like farthest. And then they just pick off the top like five or something. I'll, I'll finally post in the channel. Sweet. Oh, cool. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate that. Um, I was looking at a Udemy course also on recommender systems and um, uh, they're using Python and um, they use a, a surprise lib. And so there's, I mean, this is just for recommender systems generally, like they use the movie lens database, I guess, as their kind of example. So it's, it's not really, an, it's not entirely analogous, but anyway, um, thank you for that. Let me keep going. Awesome. Tom, did you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I put something in the chat. So in my Python, excuse me, my PyTorch review journey, which I, I got away from because there was a reason I need to learn Docker. But when I go back to PyTorch, I was, the, the great thing is there's some really good pre-trained uh, deep learning machines out there that you can apply. They, they just spew out pretty well oh, I see these objects in that image. Now you can uh, tokenize those into an occurrence matrix and then use simple cosine similarity to, to say, oh, these images group together. It's, it, when you use cosine similarity and you do it at scale, it's very much like applying Ken's nearest neighbors. So I will be ever, forever corrupted saying it that way now. And if you need help with... Uh, a pre-made linear algebra machine, contact me. I, I've, I've got a Git repo that will get you a fast start on that. 
Great. Thank you. That's cool. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was messing around just building these models, uh, other people in the group had used ResNet uh, and VGG like 19. But, you know, I don't know that they, at least when I was building a more complicated models, um, they didn't seem to do as well on these types of images because they're just textures. They're not I don't know why. I'm assuming this might be why, but even when I added more filters or made the, you know, did a bunch of stuff like that, added more cond layers, it, it made things, uh, made them worse, made it really worse. And when I added dropouts, that just destroyed the whole thing. So there's something interesting that I thought was going, that I think is going on if you're just using textures as opposed to any other kind of normal photographic type image. And I don't know yeah. if anyone has any thoughts on that. I just want to emphasize ResNet's kind of old now. And there's some later ones that will detect multiple objects and just let you know what they are in the image. So it could be that you get a hold of an existing image and you simplify it. But I would avoid trying to modify it because you're gonna you're gonna get into the weeds really quick with that. For what at least I'm not saying you don't have the abilities, Gina. I just mean for what I understand you're trying to do. I would try that first if it were me, but then I would listen to Makiko before me too. <laughs> Amazing. Anyone else have uh, anything to add on that one? I must have Perfect. missed this, but what kind of textures are you trying to match? Yeah, so I wasn't gonna say, but I mean, it's textiles. Um, the challenge is public on the group, on the website and yeah, it's textiles. And so it's like finding similar textiles. It is labeled data. So mm. um, you can, and I also, I did something that maybe isn't like the best. There are three different labels and I combined them all. So I ended up with like 105 labels, but I was just trying stuff. I've been, yeah, Tom, to your point, I've been working, I've been spending some hours, but this is just my brain, how it operates when I'm, able to devote some time is just trying different things and seeing how it goes. And that's how I found out that, um, yeah, that um, the, 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 the bigger models didn't seem to work as well, but I didn't actually use VGG-19, so. Um, so here's the, here's the catch with some of those bigger models, right? So a lot of them are designed around specific challenges, particularly object detection or classification. Right, And when you're looking at that, you're looking at models that are trying to understand at a semantic level what the context is of a particular shape or, or object, right? What you're trying to do is slightly different. What you're trying to do is look at the textures and the, and the patterns appearing within an area more than anything. So if you look at any of the larger like deep learning models, the first few layers are going to be essentially doing texture extraction. The further down the model you go, the less it's about textures and the more the embedding becomes relevant to your semantic classification, right? So really adding more layers isn't necessarily gonna help because you're just getting further and further away from the textural embedding, right? Um, so that that's one side of probably why it's not performing that much better. Um, so maybe if you take the embedding at an at earlier layer, you might, out of, say, VGG19 or one of those models, maybe that'll perform better as a um, embedding process. 
The other side that might be interesting in this kind of a challenge because it's so specific is um, how do you do your, can, can you manipulate your feature extraction a little bit? Um, for example, out of the image, can you spot uh, other patterns? Can you process the image uh, in other interesting ways? Now, and this may be looking at like uh, simple things like Fourier transforms of the signal patterns within the image, right? To make edges stand out, to make uh, similar patterns stand out. Uh, there's all sorts of random and seemingly, well, seemingly random things you can do to an image to make different patterns stand out and essentially transform it into a different domain, right? Textures would stand out completely differently in, in different domains if you transform it right. Now, I don't know exactly what the patterns are and what you're looking for, but essentially you can merge a bit of the old school pattern recognition techniques that people used to use with uh, some basic neural networks at the front or some basic convolutional networks at the front. Um, and it has well, nothing very deep. But... Yeah, one of our guys is working on um, uh, fast Fourier transforms of the image. And um, yeah, some, some folks did some um, yeah, some like canny edges and HOG and some other things. So yeah, I don't want to probably don't want to say too much, but anyway, um, yeah, this is really, this is really, really good stuff. You guys. Awesome. That was an awesome take us to buy. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I was thinking that maybe it has some similarity to like patterned audio where if you transform it, it has a very different different insight which is pretty incredible i mean i experimented with some audio embeddings and those were very powerful looking at spectrograms any of those types of things um how many how many images did you say you had again it was like 2000 something along those lines no no it's uh well in the in my train data set obviously i could split it different ways i, I think in the total data set we have it's like well okay so it's like twenty two thousand images but there are about 14 images. They're all taken in a very particular way and it's about 14 images for each, let's say sample. And so this is another, pardon the pun, wrinkle in the textile identification, RRR. Um, so yeah, so, and there's a question about, but they're taken in slightly different ways to sort of help show different aspects of the textile. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I think this, go ahead, Tom. So sorry, based on my experience, Gina, with a lot of image detection recognition stuff, which is actually quite similar. I, I think uh, Eric's suggestions on these open CV links and more that could bear some really big fruit. Um, yeah. And sorry, I wasn't listening more carefully earlier. <laughs> no, no, was... no worries. Because I didn't say textiles right off the bat. I oh, okay. Textures. Oh, oh I yes. feel better blaming you than me then. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That. Feel free. <laughs> uh, does anyone have anything to add? Awesome. So I, I think a, a pretty good segue from this type of you know challenge would be even going backwards towards the hackathon that Russell did. And I'm interested in what you all have seen from data-related hackathons or like datathons, whatever it might be, and what makes one successful. I mean, this is something selfishly I've been thinking about maybe putting one on towards the end of the year. 
And I'd really like to hear what makes one go off well, what type of data is relevant and those types of things versus what might make one uh, suffer a little bit. Um, Russell, you want to start that one off since you have the experience so that the freshest, uh, the freshest memory of one. Sure. Uh, so I think the best thing um, is choose challenges to solve and data that are relevant to something that's active in the real world right now. Things that will bring value to a person or an organization or anything immediately, because then if something does bear fruit fairly immediately, even though it's it's very immature, it it can then get investment from from outside to then really enable it to burgeon beyond and outside the constraints of the of the hackathon, uh, no matter if it be a single day, uh, a two day event or a five day event. Um, and no matter how intensively you approach one of those uh, and and how fantastic you are, you won't get a fully polished um, solution at the end of that, but you will get a great uh, a great what I would call a scaffold or a great plan to build from or a great demonstration article to build something that could be a uh, a polished article after it. So um, choose carefully the uh, the data that you have available so that it's it's high quality data so that the teams that do the hackathon don't have to do an awful lot of pre-processing or, or pre-structuring or, or pre-cleaning, etc. That saves a lot of time. And in fields that are open for improvement and almost crying out for improvement. So hence the one I was at was for project delivery. Uh, project delivery has been around for, well, hundreds of years, but in the in the modern, should we call it the the uh, the 3.0 age um, and bordering into the 4.0 age, uh, they, we understand more than ever the restrictions of it. So that that's a great area to look at. But outside of that, you know, there are far more nuanced things. So uh, looking at the new, the new tech age uh, and some of the great things that have been mentioned in the, in the, in the call this evening, you know, choose some of those as a seed for, to, to set teams at, to, to come up with something unorthodox. And that's the biggest value of the hackathons is to aim for something unorthodox, aim for something that's outside of the box don't just build something that you know someone else has done. Come at it from a completely different perspective. And if it fails completely, okay, you've lost two days. If it hits the mark, though, those two days bring a real huge benefit. Do you think it's better to have multiple data sets for one hackathon or everyone focusing on the same data set? I mean, is there a chance that it gets a little bit boring if you have one or, or what is the general philosophy on that? So I think there's a threshold. The one I was at, there was multiple data sets and multiple challenges and different teams approached different challenges. So I think there was there was a maximum of 15 different challenges with their own unique data sets, not all of which were picked up. Uh, but I think we went forward with maybe about 10 of those. And for some challenges, there was more than one team approached the same challenge. So there was a little bit of in hackathon competition there. So definitely better to have more than one, I think. Uh, but there's going to be an upper threshold there, you know, depending on how many people you have coming to the hackathon. If you have 200 challenges and 20 people turning up, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of missed data, missed opportunities there, you know. Amazing. Uh, Vin, you have any thoughts on the hackathons? You're also welcome to tell us what Web 5.0 is as well. I know Joe Reese said he had a couple of companies reaching out about Web 4.0 and 5.0 companies, apparently. And um, 
we were we got a very good chuckle out of that when I was visiting him. Yeah, it's craziness. Everybody that had AI in their resume or their like bio header in the early 2010s, then went to uh, Web 3.0 recently, and now they're all trying to like <clears throat> jump on quantum, which is halfway nutty. Yeah, it's it's kind of gotten weird. Uh, on the hackathon thing, it I love hate hackathons. I think as a hiring tool, it can be amazing. But when it comes to like actually making forward progress on an issue, ah, I don't love it so much because a lot of what comes out of it isn't you get it into like the point where you would put it towards production and you realize it isn't feasible. I mean, it was a great idea at the time and it's probably going to lead somewhere eventually, but I have a hard time with a lot of what comes out of hackathons just because there's not the, the kind of work that gets done at hackathons just isn't so applied in most cases. And you'll have incremental experience, like incremental improvements and small pieces that could spawn off into something. But a lot of times what comes out of a hackathon is really just, you know, good teams where three or four people self-assemble, they get some really impressive work done. And if you're looking to hire, like uh, that's an amazing use case for a hackathon because you find these small teams where you can just hire the entire team. And they're already proven to have worked effectively together on one project. You've watched them function effectively, kind of in a high stress, you know, time compressed environment. And for larger companies, it's great for hiring for things where you're trying to make forward progress on an actual problem. It's not so much a hackathon as I would do a larger challenge. And I've seen this done with startup challenges before where you your hackathons more over six weeks or eight weeks and you offer checkpoints, you offer expertise, you have different companies that support with infrastructure and, you know, just a little bit of help and some guardrails and people treat it like they're starting a company. Like it's a startup, you get an MVP or something like that out the door at the very end of it. And then you get funded, you know, you get a hundred thousand, 250,000, and those are the ones that actually lead to some pretty interesting advances because you throw a whole bunch of crowdfunding at it. More times than not, you get one or two experienced people comb you know, combined with a couple of college kids and some people that are just entering the field from software development or someplace else. You get some really interesting teams and you get some good solutions. And that's really where I like you know, the concept of hackathon, but it's just more of an extended like an extended process rather than a, you know, three day, one week. And, Amazing. you know, long live web 5.0. If somebody needs web 5.0 consulting, I'm more than happy to explain um, exactly how to, I mean, the best way to make a million dollars in web 5.0 is to start out with 10. And I'm, I'm your guy to help with that. Your consulting fee is okay. also $5 million, correct? Can yeah, I just Russell? check is, is, is Web 5.0 only around Hawaii? Uh, you know, for me in the in the UK, seeing TV, um, um, you know, from from back in the in the 70s and more recently with the Hawaii 5.0 program, I can't help but make that association. Yeah, we're having the new Hawaii Web 5.0 slash Hawaii 5.0 meetup um, next month, so you guys are all welcome. Uh, tickets will be available for a million dollars a piece. Uh, Eric, did you have any thoughts on uh, on this one? I saw you raise your hand there. Yeah. So real quick, this is an article from 
May 2013. So I don't know how old it's aged, but it's Web 5.0 is the sensory and emotive web. It's designed to develop computers that interact with human beings. Relationship will become a daily habit for many people. I'm not really sure what that means, but there you go. Just Googled it. Or symbiotic web. Hmm. Anyway. Symbiotic web. Yeah. So, uh, I've had a kind of a couple different thoughts as, as, um, Russell and Ben have been sharing, but, uh, my experience has been, so I actually recently was in a, did a hackathon at work and something that made it a good experience was that the organizers of the hackathon had taken the time to talk to like leaders around the company ahead of time to say, what are some projects that you'd like the hackathon hackers, uh, to work on? And then we just like, and then we picked something rather than uh, having it be too, too open-ended. We kind of knew a little bit ahead of time, self-assemble, and then could work on something and try and come up with an MVP. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to all of the projects, uh, but I know that some will be prioritized. You know, the ours will probably be done at some point, but it didn't end up being super high priority. It's okay. Um, another thing though, I think as I think like, okay, if I was going to do a hackathon, what's the, what's your purpose? Is your purpose to have people get together and build something that's going to become a startup? Is your purpose to like do a civic hackathon where you have like local organizations that need resources and it doesn't matter, like maybe they're not really complicated and people can pick them up fairly quickly. Or is it like Vin was describing, which kind of is like, I mean, you could call it a hackathon. I've heard it called a hackathon, but I wonder if you'd get a different pool of applicants if you called it something like a fellowship or whatever, where it's like, oh, this is a thing that I'm like setting myself up for, for three months or six weeks or something like that. And so people maybe see it as like less hacky and more of a, more of a thing that maybe I should maybe be a little bit more committed to. Yes. Fellowship of web 5.0. Uh, so I, I don't know. I was trying to think like through, through that through that purpose, because if, again, you know, that'll describe whether everybody shares a data set. Are we trying to win? Are we trying to optimize and come up with the best model or, or what? And then I'll just drop this in the chat, but I, I found a, a little while back when reading and researching about hackathons a bit myself, a couple of good posts. Um, one is called, it's from hackathon.guide. It's the website. Uh, it's just like a GitHub page and the other is so you think you want to run a hackathon think again and it's a civic it's a civic hackathon article and so it's like how to make it's like talking about if you want to approach like a hackathon from a perspective of like capital h or if you just want to like engage people um in like civic tech or whatever so it may not quite be what you're looking for but i thought it was a really good read kind of opened my mind to something other than just you know the usual hackathon stuff that i'm used to hearing about that's amazing. I will definitely check those out. Tom, did you have any uh, any thoughts on this one? Only uh, things that are totally unedifying and not serious at the moment because of what's going on in the chat. By the end of this, we'll be on to, to Web 6.0, um, which could be the end of us all from what I understand. I think um, Ben did inspire me to start marketing myself much better. I want to be a... a quantum web 7.0 thought leader that i don't know what i was thinking before i'm always underselling myself yeah you have to add evangelist in your title as well i feel like uh that's the missing piece <laughs> um before we get off the hackathon hackathon concept i think it's 
it's really interesting to just evaluate what's in the market. I think Kaggle is is probably the the front runner there. I still consider those hackathons, but they're to me missing a very aggressive like social piece. Uh, obviously, that you can have teams, but there's something really cool about coming together for a short period of time and actually like producing something. I think that skill of taking a couple of days and having an output or a product is something that so many people along the journey just forget. I don't know about you guys, but I start so many projects without actually finishing them. And it's nice to have a time box dedicated time to like start and get something to like MVP, which is like finished of version 0.0, right? So I think that there's really good value there. You're so right on the purpose and the execution and the timing. There's a lot to work out, but I think that there's absolutely benefit longer term for people who participate, um, for people who host them. That's uh, a significantly dicier proposition. Um, does anyone have any additional questions? I figure we might as well wrap it up with with uh, the the quantum web. 5.0 uh, evangelist talk uh, on the way out. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a touchy one if it's yep. okay. And it's okay. If everyone says no, you know, just strike out. <clears throat> so Navi, I don't know if you want to come on camera for this, but <clears throat> I think the brave post of the day award goes to Navi because she introduced uh she wasn't trying to answer the question about should we have gun control or not? She was trying to say, can we bring data to bear on this question? And um, I've been on shows where, and Ben helped me here. I, I've seen a group of data scientists uh, spitballing opinions. And I'm like, wait a minute. I thought we were all data scientists. Why are you trying to answer with opinions instead of saying, let's go collect the data. So that's why I really like Navi's post today because she took a very emotionally charged topic in our country and begged like, well, not begged, but she admonished us like, hey, can we get data to bear on at least some of the questions around this? And I thought it might be interesting for this group to explore, okay, how, how do you, get people to stay on track um, when it's such an emotionally charged cultural issue to keep focusing on the data. Because I've even been on judging panels for data science competitions and had to very politely confront domain experts for not judging according to the practice of data science principles, just because they like the 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 way a certain team was talking rather than looking at the way they were going after the data. I hope I made all that clear. If I made it too complicated, sorry, but Navi, um, good job today on that post. <clears throat> yeah, well, things happen when you can't sleep at night and uh, that was one of those posts. Um, I think it's just been difficult, you know, for a lot of us to just hear the news and just not do anything about it. And um, I was actually, you know, I'm a member of a DEI committee for my school district. Um, and 
you know, we're talking a lot of things around the qualitative aspect of DEI. And I'm like, wait a minute, why can't we put data in this, you know? And that's the conversation I had with my school last week. And then this happened. Um, and, you know, again, I don't want to make this about Rogan and Second Amendment, but I'm like, what can we do as data scientists when we lead these companies to do better? How about we start within our communities, you know? Um, they have data, but schools are, you know, they have a lot of data, but it sits in like these data lakes. So they do make a lot of informed decisions about, you know, this is their GPA, this is their code, this is uh, the student, these are the number of IPs they have. So they do have data, it just doesn't sit in, you know, AWS software and, and uh, Excel sheets and whatever. So I think, a, we should talk to our schools and ask them what they have in place. You know, start with those data lakes that are already in place that they don't see as data lakes, but we know they are data lakes. Um, and try to make sense of this before we jump the gun and say, you know, um, let's do this or let's do that, right? Um, so to me, as a person in this community, I feel like we can start somewhere where I feel like, yes, I'm involved because my kids go to this district, you know? Um, so that was kind of the idea behind the post. Can we do this? Um, I wrote to my board of ed director a few days back and he's he really wants to talk about this, um, but we have a long weekend now. So, but anyways, but, I, but to me, it is really about, you know, can we be smarter about this and not be, judging this whole conversation on a different point of view, which doesn't really has, which hasn't really done anything yet. Thank you. Now, can you um, share your post in the, in the chat as well? Um, Mickey, do you want to go ahead? Yeah. And this is something that like, so I think in general, this has been a rough couple years. If you are number one, um, a black or Hispanic person, if you're female, if you're LGBTQ, uh, it's been a rough couple years and it, on my team and in my family, including myself, you know, we have people that check all the boxes, um, you know, so it's, it's been a rough couple years. And I think, so if we just switch to like a different example, like let's look at the Zillow example. I mean, people have feelings about that, but it's like kind of tame. Um, some of the things that, and people here have talked about the Zillow example, right? That could have gone wrong and why that company got into the decision that it did potentially was one, there was like a lack of trust in conversation between the people who were analyzing the data, um, versus the people who had the power to make recommendations. So that's, that's like a big thing. And that's for like a relatively trivial example where, People did lose their jobs afterwards, but for the most part, right, no one lost their lives and they certainly didn't lose the lives of like the people around them. So having that like lack of trust and the ability to have conversations, I think is something we see all the time in like the data field. And I think it's one of the things where I, I kind of wonder, like, I think there's two, there's three sort of things where I want to think about it, right? Like one 
is are kind of the incentives fully transparent in those conversations, right? And I think this is something that I feel very strongly about, which is that a lot, like even right now, I think most people don't feel like they're, they have the representation, right? In like our government or in our, in the media or even the ability to have kind of those changes get propagated, even if there is data to back it. That's, that's certainly something that like I, I very much feel, right? Um, I think secondly, a lot of these conversations, like it goes back to incentives, but also goes back to like, and we've seen, and like they've done research on this, right? Once people have made up their decision, uh, it is very, very hard for them to actually change like what they've already decided. Um, and they've done research on this for other like sort of political stories, or for example, when an election happens, once again, fairly trivial sort of, well, I don't say trivial area. I don't want to trivialize, you know, civics and politics and government here. But once again, those are areas where people are like, well, how do you feel about this person's views and all that? The minute they sort of already have made up their minds, any news reports or articles that you publish actually will typically not change those minds. It'll drive them kind of further into their belief system. And we saw this with like vaccines. Once again, it's like, it's an example that I think prior to, or this, you know, prior to the 2010 elections, you know, beyond that, right? There wasn't this sort of polarization around something very simple as like a vaccine. Um, and I know people who have very strong feelings on, on both sides, right? Including myself, I'm very, very pro-vaccine. Um, so I think, I think it's challenging, right? Because I think, so the average, you know, Joe, Jane, Mickey, Emily, you know, Mary, Fred, although all of us, it's, I think I struggle with the fact that one, I don't feel like, frankly, at this point, I can enact any change. I can influence any change. Uh, number two, it feels like a lot of the politics and the conversations around me are sort of being driven by like incentives that I'm not aware of. And the other aspect of it is I feel like I don't have transparency into those conversations. Um, so that maybe data can help on that third front, right? Giving people transparency into what's actually going on. I don't know how it will solve the first two problems of, you know, the lack of transparency in like the incentives that are driving people and also the lack of, I, I don't feel like at this point, even with the data that is out there, that even if it points to like a very positive, you know, fully confident outcome, I don't personally believe that people will change. So, you know, but yeah, I think that that's a pretty terrifying overarching thought. Um, I recently read a book, uh, Never Split the Difference, and they talk about how logic in any negotiation almost never works. Like the most important things are building trust with the other pe person or the, or the community or whoever it is in order to change their mind. And I think you see logic not working with all the statistics around many of these issues. I think that the numbers are pretty clear. If you look at, for example, like gun ownership in the US versus other countries and some of these other things, it's that there isn't trust from either either side of the aisle. There's there's no trust in the communities or, or with politicians or any of these types of things. And I also feel like that's an even harder challenge to tackle, um, even with the data, where like data should be and logic should be where we build trust. 
And I think it's very hard for, for me, especially working in this profession, to see that people aren't trusting data and the things that, that are, should be as gra- close to ground truth as possible. Um, but I digress. Go ahead, Custom. I think the, um, the interesting thing with these kinds of conversations, and, and it's been pretty harrowing listening to it yet again from so far away, right? We're sitting in Australia. I mean, in Australia, the story's been different over the last 20, 25 years in terms of how we address gun control. And same thing with our neighbors in New Zealand. And the countries aren't so different. So the, the difficult thing to wrap our heads around is that it's not from a lack of data existing. It's more about how do we how do we respond to data? I don't think people are as data-driven as data scientists would like to believe, right? From all of us in the data world, we like to think that we can make data-driven decisions. And you see this at the business level as well, right? So many times you jump into a into a large corporate company and they're like, oh, we want to make data-driven decisions, but let's be honest, they don't have the data, or if they do have the data, they're still leaning on conventional wisdom and conventional biases that exist within the system of that company. Now, expand that out to a country, right? Expand that out to a country of 300 million people with existing biases, existing needs, existing uh, cultural context, right? That often ends up being a much more powerful story than anything that the data alone can drive. And I think that's the story of what we've seen uh, definitely over the last 20 years um, with regards to gun control and, and issues like that. So uh, how, do we, how do we add value as data scientists to a story like that is we've got to leverage more than our data skills, our communication skills, right? Um, we're able to communicate the impact of data at a business level. Now we need to do that at a social level, and that's a much more difficult challenge. It's not on; it's not impossible to do, right? And it's definitely worth doing. The question is, how do we do it, right? It's 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 challenging, and it's difficult to believe that data alone will get people across the line on things like that. Um, and it is harrowing to watch and understand. And that's the story, right? Is how harrowing it is for everybody to understand what's going on. Um, yeah, I, I don't see a data-only way around something like this. Awesome. Thank you, Kustub. Uh Navi, go ahead. I, mean, I think they're valid points. Um, I don't think that the, at least the intent of the post was to change anybody's mind. Um, you know, you can't change my mind and I'm not going to change your mind, right? Um, I think... If we think about this exercise as, say, a risk model, right? The rate of default of somebody not paying their debt, credit card risk model, or any insurance models, or mortgage models, or whatever. You know, you go into the premise that people are going to pay back. And then there is data that we have about these people that guides us on their propensity to pay back. Right. I'm saying that given that sadly we have a lot of data about the number of shootings that have happened, what we don't have are the variables for the shootings or the shooters 
that led to those things. So we, what I'm asking us to do is collect those data points that led us there. And it's a very tiny percentage of people in a country of 300 plus million people. But there must be patterns of certain behavior that have come out of this that we should think about without, without saying that, you know, I'm not saying take your guns, like I'm not even getting there, I, you know. I'm saying, can we start looking at that, right? So we already know that the whole funding situation and they're not gonna do what they're not gonna do because they don't wanna do it. But can we start somewhere gathering that data? Because, you know, the end point is that credit card transaction of purchase of that gun or whatever. But there were signs much before that. Right, there were bullying incidences, there were police reports, there were counseling sessions, there was something must have happened that led to that final thing. And how do we, you know, use those skills that we have within the parameters that we know that we can do to get the data together? I don't think I'm talking about changing anybody's minds here. I'm just talking about how about we use it the way we use it for businesses and defaulters and whatever. So I agree with you 100%. I think we should have significantly better documentation on who owns guns, like when they purchased them, even why they purchased them and things along those lines. From the people that I've talked to, and you know, I, I lived in the very American deep south for a long period of time, that is a massive point of contention for them. That is controversial that you have their information, you're infringing on their privacy to own a weapon and whatever it might be. Do I think that that's a good thing? Absolutely not. But I still think that that is a massive barrier for any type of progress. Um, you know, like the, the questions you wrote in your post, I think there are a lot of parents, particularly in like maybe Texas, that would be vehemently against giving up any of that information and would be radically against, even, even though... Like these are the communities that, that, that were just hit by this tragedy. And I, you know, it, it's fascinating to me how deep the protection of privacy is in those spaces or privacy uh, around these issues. I, I cannot personally understand. It. I don't think anyone here can necessarily understand it, but that is like absolutely something that people um, are specifically against giving up. Vin, did you have a, a thought there? Yeah, I think from a data perspective, like we have a ton of data. We really do. It's a, it, and I understand that it's not readily available. And the reason why most people don't know that we have all of this data is because there have been restrictions put on it. A lot of this data was gathered at the state level and at the federal level. And there were regulations passed to make sure that that data never was applied in the way that it was intended to be. There have been several like the CDC and a couple of other organizations at the federal level have studied this and they released reports that were basically shelved because that data reaching the rest of the world was just not something that people wanted to happen, but it's all out there. And so the data has been out there. There've been analyses done on this really credible academic institutions and some of the smartest people from think tanks have walked through this. Federal agencies have walked through this. So it's not a data problem. We know exactly what's going on. 
as far as the root cause behind each one of these each one of these mass shooting events there's a i mean there's an investigation behind each one of them and so there is a wealth of data and documentation on exactly what's going on and so that's what i i mean that's the piece that i want to add is that we have plenty of data and we've been down the road repeatedly of figuring out what's wrong and at this point, every time, and Navi, I'm not attacking you for this, so don't take this the wrong way at all. Every time we say we need to study the issue, we pretend it wasn't already done. We pretend that if we study it, we'll learn something new. And that's been, you know, we have sort of two sides of this issue that both have the same objective, which is not to do anything, not to change anything. One side is talking about the Second Amendment. You have to preserve the Second Amendment rights of people to bear arms. The other side is saying we have to study this issue and we have to figure out what's really going on. And we have to, you know, we have to do this holistic solution, but we can't do that solution until we do these studies, until we really take on this issue and get the data. And you know, on both sides, there's a level of we just don't want to have to do anything with this issue. And if you look at the numbers as far as opinion polls and what people genuinely want to have happen, there's support for a number of different issues around gun control. There's support for a number of solutions around mental health. There's support for a number of solutions just around healthcare. And around education reform and around, you know, so every issue you could possibly think of as being tangential to this has been researched, it's been documented, and not by, you know, not by like fly-by-night organizations. These are things that have been documented for 30 years now, going back, you know, into the late 90s or early 90s. We've done the research on gun violence and what you know, what we have is this rich body of research and knowledge. We have a massive amount of data. We have a public that's saying, look, this is what we want to have happen, but it's not happening. And so every time we hear someone saying, you know, there's something aside from the obvious issue that everyone who has studied this has come to. Anytime someone says, you know, we need stronger doors or we need more guns in the schools, or we need, you know, none of those solutions have any merit, in fact. And everyone making an argument on that side should know it. Anyone who's saying we need to study this more, it, there's already been tons of studies done on this. There's already been solid conclusions on this. Anyone saying that should really, especially at the policy level, they should know that. And so, and again, Navi, that wasn't you. I'm talking about people who have been in, a political position so long, they have funded several versions of this research. And for them to now be saying, we need to do more research when they funded it 20 years ago, and then 10 years ago, and then five years ago. I mean, you're coming at it from a genuine perspective of learning and education and data gathering. Whereas there is an entire side of the argument who's coming at it from, well, we need to study it so we don't do anything. And that is our biggest problem, is that we have a disconnect between what the public wants and we have two sides who are making arguments that don't make any sort of sense, but they sound great. And so people are sort of falling for it. And so that's the, you know, if you want to talk about this and hit it from a behavioral standpoint, 
The problem is that we have made it clear what we want as a nation, made it very clear, and by majority made it clear, even in those deeply Southern states, even in states like mine. I mean, Nevada, we're, we are nuttier than anything you can imagine for our Second Amendment rights. I love guns. Oh, yes. But no, take it. Yours. Those are child slaughter tools. That's what they are. That's the reality. That There are certain weapons that have proven their lethality in the same sort of thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, the data is there. And so as somebody who loves my guns and loves me some Second Amendment, you have to at some point say there is a limit to everyone's rights. And you can't come at that from multiple directions to derail the argument, to get people talking about, you know, something aside from what everyone has already said. And so, like I said, no matter where in the country you go, you're going to find a majority of people who say, yes, background checks. I think that's one of the ones that's something like 80%. It's so it's almost impossible for us to to look at this and say, uh, you know, I, I I just don't get it. I don't understand how we continue to keep going down the same path when we have plenty of data, we have plenty of research, we have plenty of public opinion. Real quick, Vin, I made you host. Uh, unfortunately, I have to go. I do not want to disrupt this very important conversation. So uh, everyone, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I, again, it was an honor to, to be with you all. And uh, I'm excited to rewatch what Mickey has to say here uh, when, I, when I get back from my next meeting. Uh, I'll talk to you all very soon. Yeah, I think I just, I, I guess wanted to add, so there's a saying like, it's not a race war, it's a class war. And while I find that saying a little bit problematic on some fronts, I do think it's kind of true as well. Um, for me personally, I feel like as long as we have the same like structures in place that continue to support the historic decisions, things aren't gonna change um, personally. But uh, that does that's not saying like we should overthrow the government. But what I do think is that to a certain degree, we need young, like we need fresh new voters. We need people like engaged in the political and civic system here in the US, because that's another thing that is kind of amazing is the fact that all the people who could vote don't vote. Whereas in other countries, the turnout is much higher. Um, but I also think too, like this kind of showcases in some ways the limits of data scientists or like data people. And this is where we need to start leaning, leaning on our domain partners. Because once again, like even like within my own family, I can present data if they don't understand the analysis or anything beyond simple ratios, I'm gonna lose them pretty much. And we also, and there's a lot of ways like we can't do like a pure experiment, right? To say whether or not gun policies are, um, you know, are in fact like what need to be changed. We can only do sort of like after stuff happens, we can do the historic analysis, but there's no like humane way we can actually do experiments, right? To actually tease out the causality of certain things. Um, you know, but I do think that like, this is where we do need to be like partnering with our data storytellers, with our policymakers, 
And I do think it, it does need to be grassroots because like, once again, the powers in play, like they don't want things to change, um, you know, but people on the other hand, I still believe in large numbers who do turn out to vote and vote out, you know, a lot of these sort of, leg you know, a lot of these like policymakers, um, I do think there is power there. So I, I don't think it's a, is the data there? I think it's a like, what is the right messaging and what's the right conversation? How do you get as many people engaged as possible so that they go to the polls and make informed decisions? Because even in San Francisco, there are tons of times where bills are passed or we have propositions that like go up for vote. And I don't understand half of it. Like I should, but a lot of times I have to lean on analyses by the SF like Examiner or Chronicle. I have to look at nonprofit or, you know, government like watchdog groups to figure out like, okay, am I voting for what is meaningful for me? But at the same time, that's a privilege in and of itself because a lot of poor working class families, they do not have that. They don't have that time and energy to vote to like, okay, how do I read and analyze the different points of this proposition? So I think whatever we can do to, you know, kind of get that information in people's hands to combine it with like an understanding of like the conversations people are having and what level they're having it. For example, Gen Z probably has very, very different concerns from my grand from my parents' generation. Um, I think that's that's the stuff that like if we can somehow make it work, then I, I do think there will be change. But I think as long as we have the same people in power, it's just, yeah, it's just not gonna happen. Yeah, let me go to Tom next and then Costa and Navi, are you still, are you waiting to talk to, or are you? Uh, no, I, you know, the, the part that, um, I, I don't mean it for just this topic, but in general, I think bias and where the bias takes us is an important thing to recognize as data scientists, you know? So if my bias is that guns are bad, then I can't do this analysis. Or if my bias is that guns are good, I can't do it either. So the conversation is again, going in the direction of, hey, guns are bad. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying as data scientists, our job is not to decide that. Our job is to find the patterns that can help us identify these positions, these people before it happens. So that's, I think, and, and, and it's important, like I, I'm also, I also have very strong opinions about this, but I don't know if I'll be a good data scientist on something like this, right? So to keep our biases aside and still, you know, be a learner and try to find a, what, am I, what is my success metric for this project? and B, how, how unbiased can I be or involve people who are as unbiased as possible to help us get there? I, th I think that's kind of, you know, what I'm trying to get at. Again, I'm, again, I'm not, I think they're all valid points, um, but we already know what, what that is, right? We already know that this is, not a good thing to have because we're the only country with with that problem so yeah you know and i think you're right i understand where you're coming from and like i said i i get wanting to have more facts and i get wanting to do more research because it makes us feel like we can do something 
you know, as data scientists, it's hard to, it's hard to sit on the sideline, isn't it? All right, Tom, go ahead. Yeah, I'm actually glad you had Navi go first. Um, so I, I was, Navi and I were chatting privately earlier over LinkedIn chat. And I said, what's hard for me is just from my current perspective, and I'm sure I don't have enough data. I have this literally brainiac, brilliant friend who is probably the world's best expert on uh, the Second Amendment, historically speaking. I mean, even from pre-Declaration of Independence time, the, the rules, why they set up the, the laws they did. And um, hang on a minute. Um, and so uh, I, I will reveal he's very pro-gun rights. And when I, just from my own viewpoint, I tend to think of, hey, I want good people to have guns, but I really am okay with, here's my background. Yeah, check me out. Yeah, please keep the crazies from having guns, please. Um, now, what I was telling Nobby, I really wanna be open to being wrong on my current stance. And I, I hope I'm not making enemies by revealing this. My current logic is, hey, um, if you outlaw guns, outlaws will still get guns. Then when, what do you do when you're facing an outlaw with a gun? And yeah, no, I don't wanna shoot him, but uh, if I'm protecting my family or innocent people, let me put it this way. I have, uh, and I'm not bragging, it's just cause I have a lot of kids. I have a million dollars in personal life insurance. Well, when I got that, I had nine young kids. And I didn't want my wife to be strapped with all that responsibility. We've always hoped, I think, well, I'm pretty sure Sue didn't ever want to use that insurance money. Please laugh. Anyway, um, but if I am concealed carrying around my local area when I go out, I don't want to use that gun on anyone. It's insurance. Um, I go to a Catholic parish, that because of church shootings, there's guys walking around with their pieces ready to defend the priests and the congregation. Um, do I like that? Well, I like it better than my congregation get sh getting shot up or my priests getting shot up. So it's, it's an evil world we live in, unfortunately. However, if there was a better way to control it, I would be open. I, I don't want to be guilty of not being able to admit, oh, my current thinking is wrong, because actually having that spirit has been one of the better blessings of my life, being willing to make major worldview changes. But I like some of the comments that uh, people were saying in the chat and in this discussion, like Eric said, you guys are so calm. Um, a lot of people just rant about this and won't. Just, okay, I heard your viewpoint. Here's my viewpoint. Oh, wow. Let me really try to take your viewpoint here for a minute. Uh, yeah, that's been very rare. I've been able to have a talk like that with opposite sides. All right, Kosa, go for it. Here's the, here's the thing, right? Like it is, it is one of those things where the, you're right. I mean, the data does exist, 
right? I mean, I'm not trying to get into counter counter discussion points, to be honest, at this point. But I mean, we've seen examples from around the world where countries with guns have had different ways of controlling how they respect the use of guns, uh, particularly within members of the public, right, outside of the armed forces and, and law enforcement. Uh, countries without guns have also shown the efficacy of that. You've kind of got to understand the temperament and degree of responsibility and liberty that that your people has and tailor the tailor the laws to suit that and i think out of the countries that have shown some measure of voice in terms of gun legislation whether it's australia or japan or new zealand or um or, or you know sweden for, for that matter, right there are different approaches across all of these countries but essentially it feels like America still hasn't got the right balance um, balance of legislations to people's actual needs and the temperament of the people of the states, right? Um, it's a very, very difficult conversation we had, but you can't get a full picture of that. This kind of rounds back to what Mickey was saying before. You can't get a full measure of a, of a nation's temperament unless you actually hear the voice of the full nation, right? Like, I mean, this somehow really does come down to who are we electing right and and i'm i'm trying to be really measured here because i'm not from the states i don't fully understand the nation and nature of people from america so big disclaimer guys i'm australian it's a different perspective here but i guess an outsider's view right um when you have a full body of people voting you get a much broader sense of what people care about and then you vote based on that. Uh, you're represented based on that, right? Uh, so in a sense, yeah, compulsory voting or, or at least a larger percentage of voter turnout is really critical to actually getting the issues that matter legislated for, right? I mean, people can say all they want until they're actually voting people in that will do the things they care about. It's difficult to justify otherwise. I mean, in a democracy, that's how it works. Right. Um, and the funny thing is, I hear interesting arguments against compulsory voting, like, oh, people will throw donkey votes and fake votes. For those of you who don't know, a donkey vote is basically a vote that's not uh, not legitimate because you voted for both parties as number one or something like that. You filled in the ballot paper wrong. People do it on purpose. Um, but here's the funny stats in Australia with compulsory uh, compulsory voting, less than five percent. Right, I think the, the the peak donkey vote across the last twenty years or something was somewhere at five percent. Right, I mean, yeah, fine. We've got a smaller population than the state of California, to be fair. But at the same time, the percentages don't lie. I mean, if people are there, there, I I trust in um, incompetence over uh, what is the right word for this. Um, Incompetence over necessarily apathy or or you know uh, negligence or something like you know just actively being against the idea of voting, right? I think people are more likely to make a mistake than turn up to the election booth and say, "No, I'm purposely going to do a donkey vote because I don't believe in voting in a democracy. I don't believe in my voice being heard," right? Um, because there are people who who choose to opt out of voting even in Australia, which is that you're default voting choices that you should vote and when 95 percent of people are put in that position where they're told to vote 
they end up making a legitimate vote. And even if it's based on gut instinct, now it may be based on policy, it may be on gut instinct. A lot of the voters in Australia, from what I hear, had some reservation about Scott Morrison as the the, the previous, the incumbent PM that was that just lost the last election, um, which is like a week ago, by the way, in Australia. But uh, like, it was interesting how that had an effect. And you're now seeing a third party rise into the Australian uh, political spectrum because that's what people seem to care about. And it's kind of unprecedented. And it's a reflection on the the Australian people and how we see the leadership uh, has unfolded over the last 20 years, essentially. right? And people wanting a bit of change have ended up voting in a diametrically opposite way to how they've usually voted, right? Um, entire voting lines have changed, like entire regions that have previously been a strong safe seat for one party have flipped, right? It's been a very interesting election in Australia, and that's because you're getting the full voice, right? You're never going to have that unless you get everyone to the polling booth. And that includes people who are not fully informed about their voting opinion. Is at some level you've got to trust the people's gut instinct, right? So it's a lot of it comes down to how do we operate as a democracy, right? In order to be able to get um, a fair balance of concerns out there, right? However opposing they are, right? All right. In the spirit of respecting everybody's time, I appreciate all the comments on behalf of uh, Ken, who had to leave a little early. I appreciate the honesty. And, and then let's all agree we at least solved the problem here in this short time. Yeah, I mean, I think we're done. <laughs> uh, I think we're good for dinner right now. Yeah, yeah. Let's break. I'm going to go but watch I, a violent American action movie now. Think, I think I'm going to go have breakfast and watch a violent American action movie. <laughs> we have several to recommend. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate the time. Appreciate everybody coming. On behalf of Harpreet and Ken, 